We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Sicily. I know, it doesn't sound like a big sacrifice, but... We've been trapped here for four days because there was a fire at the airport. The flights that we were supposed to be on got postponed three or four days. Now they've changed it to a completely different airport that I will have to go to tomorrow, a four-hour drive. Um, so, you know, I'm happy to be here, but I, you know, have stuff to complain about. Um, uh, but we're joined by two other people who are equally capable of complaining about all sorts of happy things. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted to have them here, of course. The number one person in that regard on this podcast for low these many years is Rosa Brooks of, of Georgetown University. What are you complaining about these days, Rosa? Uh, well, it's an honor, David, to be a complainer in chief here on Deep State Radio. Uh, uh, I'm just complaining about the fact that, as as some of you know, I recently moved, and uh, uh, this week I have Wi-Fi. Last week I had catastrophically bad Wi-Fi. But I have mounds of, of un-unpacked junk, and I have realized that I have too much stuff. And if anyone listening to Deep State Radio would like to come to my house and take away random objects, um, that would be fantastic. So just contact me if you want some random junk. We don't even know what it is, but it's in boxes, and, and you can have it. A virtual garage sale at Rosa's house, everybody. I think that sounds like a great yes. idea. Um, also with us from Council on Foreign Relations, from the Washington Post, from uh, your favorite television station, Max Boot. What's on your mind, Max? Is everything fine or do you have something to complain about too? You know, David, I've just been thinking about the mean- meaninglessness of life uh, spurred by re-watching a classic movie uh, about Schmidt starring Jack Nicholson, which uh, if you have not seen it, I would I would greatly commend to you because I think it is a masterpiece and it and it sort of captures the the angst and despair of a retiring insurance uh, actuary as he looks back on on his life and makes me also realize the meaninglessness the meaninglessness of my own existence. So there you go. I want to I want to get this off to a to a cherry to a cherry start. I think you just I think you just won the competition for things to complain about. 
<laughs> yeah, I have, t- I have two responses to that. Of course, you've heard the joke about the actuary who always carried a bomb with him on the plane because he knew that the odds were against two people carrying a b- bomb with him on a plane. <laughs> Okay, so that's the only actuary joke I know. Uh, the, 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 there is a big movie this summer coming out with a lot of existential core issues. That's the Barbie movie. Will you be waiting in line for that this weekend, Max? Absolutely. Barbie and Oppenheimer. How, how do I how do I choose between those? It's, well, you're not supposed to. It's a mission to. impossible, so to speak. The cool, the cool kids are, are going to see both the same day, and they're calling it Barbieheimer. And Rose is a cool kid. That's probably what you'll be doing, right, the, Rose? That's right. And and the cool kids, the cool kids have decided that these movies basically are about the same thing, which is our propensity to develop technologies that will destroy the Earth. Uh, uh, one of them being you know, nuclear weapons. The other being Barbies. Yeah. Well, that's equally, equally grave threats to the future of, of, of humanity. <laughs> Apparently, it takes three cups of oil to produce one Barbie. So Barbie is, in fact, the primary driver of climate change. But it only okay. took yeah. about so 30 I won't, seconds. I won't go to bed worrying about nuclear Armageddon. I'll go to bed worrying about Barbie, Barbie Mageddon. Quite right. Barbie Mageddon, exactly. Yeah, it only took my daughters about 15 seconds after opening the box to decapitate Barbie and put her head in a, in a salad bowl that we had for that purpose. We, we, we you had a salad bowl full of Barbie heads? <laughs> yeah, that was in their bathtub. It was, but they grew up sort of normal, oh. you know, so I don't. Uh, uh, but that's, huh, okay. that's you know that that was. Yeah, I'm sorry to have doubts, but okay. Yeah, I well, it's minor. Um, so let I mean, there's so much to talk about. You know, I thought, well, I'll go away for a week. We was at business trip, and I'll go away, and then nothing will happen. And then, of course, in the course of that week, we have um, the NATO summit, the aftermath of the NATO summit, Russia pulling out of the grain deal, uh, a conversation between Netanyahu and Biden, um, which seems to have been, you know, the Rashomon of meetings where both of them had a completely different relationship of of view of the thing, Uh, a visit by the Israeli president to the U.S. Henry Kissinger at 100 years old heads off to China. uh, And at the same time, the Chinese foreign minister seems to have gone missing. Um, and that's all just in the past four or five days. And I'm sure I'm, oh yeah. And, and by the way, global warming has hit us with a vengeance. The past 15 days have been the 15 hottest days ever recorded in the history of the earth. And I could certainly vouch for that here in Sicily, where it's been over a hundred every single day and Saturday is supposed to be 109. Um, so, uh, there's, there's a lot to talk about, but let me start with something you wrote about recently, Max. Uh, which is the decision by the United States to provide cluster munitions to Ukraine. Um, uh, it, it is controversial kind of in two ways. One, there are a number of people who object to the distribution of cluster munitions. Um, and two, uh, the, the, the Ukrainians have been asking for so many other forms of uh, munitions and weapons systems platforms um, that would have been less controversial to give them, and we still are dragging our feet on those. So, where 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 do you come out on how the U.S. is managing with its NATO allies its support um, of Ukraine in in this regard? 
Well, my general principle is that we should try to give Ukraine everything that's in our power to give. And I think we should, certainly should be providing them with attack comes the longer range army missiles. We should be providing them with F-16s. And these are all things that would enable their current counteroffensive to be more successful. But I think, uh, you know, as part of that, I think it does make sense as, as President Biden decided to provide them cluster munitions, despite the fact that uh, cluster munitions are controversial because they spew out all these little bomblets and there's a danger of unexploded ordnance uh, injuring civilians for years to come, something that happened in Laos, for example, where we where we fired millions of, of cluster munitions and they're still being cleaned up many decades later. But, uh, you know, I think the Ukrainians are well aware of the risk and there's a big difference between using cluster munitions on innocent civilians, which is something that the Russians did at the beginning of this war, firing cluster munitions at Ukrainian cities. That's very different from using cluster munitions against Russian troops in trenches who are unlawfully occupying Ukrainian territory. And, you know, uh, you, cluster munitions can be very important as a transitional uh, source of ammunition for the Ukrainians because it's taking us in the U.S. and in the West so long to ramp up production of artillery ammunition that the Ukrainians are running short, and it's hard for them to keep up in this battle of our of artillery rounds with with the Russians. It's hard for them to fire enough uh, artillery ammunition to dislodge Russian troops from their trenches in southern and eastern Ukraine. And uh, with the, by providing the cluster munitions, we have millions of those in our arsenal. We can send a lot of those pretty quickly. And each one, of course, uh, you know, the effects are multiplied many times from that of a conventional unitary artillery round. So uh, I think from a, as a matter of military necessity, it's something that we need to do. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any legal problem because uh, although a, a lot of nations have banned cluster munitions, the U.S. and Ukraine have not signed that convention. So it's perfectly legal to do. And yeah, there are certainly, there will be uh, there will be risk to civilians of unexploded ordnance, but the Ukrainians are aware of that. It's going to be on their own soil, their own civilians are willing to run those risks because I think they've judged that the greater risk is to leave the Russians in occupation of 20% of Ukraine in perpetuity. And that's something that they simply cannot accept and we should not accept. What do you think, Rosa? I think that last point is is the key one. I mean, generally speaking, cluster munitions is you know it's not a nice weapon. It's, it creates a serious danger that there are you know unexploded chunks that are hanging around for for civilians to to step on or be killed by in the future. But you know, as Max said, I think that the critical issue it's always a sort of well you know it's this is bad. This is this is not a nice weapon. Not that any weapon is nice, but this is a weapon that carries particular risk to civilians. But it's always, you know, compared to what, um, you know, the Russian military is also bad for Ukrainian civilians. And this is not a situation where the, the choices are the Ukrainians win and don't use cluster munitions versus the Ukrainians win, but do use cluster munitions, uh, in which case you'd say, well, let's, let's, you know, that's a bad weapon to use. This is a situation where things are, things are fairly dire. Uh, it's what we have. Uh, the Ukrainian government has agreed to this and asked for this. Uh, it seems pretty clear that the Ukrainian people regard this as a price that they're willing to pay, and it is on their soil. You know, that being said, I mean, I think the the broader the broader concern this raises in some ways um, uh, is, you know, gee, it's a good thing nobody seems to be invading the United States right now. 
um, because it really, we've talked about this in the past, this, 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 the Ukrainian conflict has exposed the fact that our own capacity to produce uh, the military systems that we might someday need is much worse than I, I, I think probably many Americans imagined, you know, that the ability to ramp up quickly uh, without depleting our own necessary stocks uh, has proven very, very elusive. And that's actually, that, that's, that's a little bit scary given the nature of the world that we live in right now. No, no, no question about that. You know, you guys are sophisticated foreign policy experts. And as you know, I'm just a simple guy from New Jersey. And so uh, when I look at this, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian conduct of this war, um, I don't think about it in terms of Clausewitz or, you know, uh, you know, advanced theories of, of warfare. I look at them in a real New Jersey sense and think the Russian government and the Russian military are a bunch of evil shitheads. And, you know, they, you know, they've used cluster munitions. They've destroyed cities. They have um, stolen the children of Ukraine. Uh, they have, um, you know, violated almost every international uh, uh, agreement imaginable in terms of the conduct of warfare. Most recently, just this evening, in fact, uh, Russia time, uh, it was announced that, uh, you know, they, are, they pulled out of this grain agreement uh, whereby they were letting Ukrainian grain pass through the Black Sea so that it could get to poor countries that depended on it to avoid starvation. And they've said, no, we're out of that. And, and, and late this uh, evening, they said, uh, and any ship that is coming to Ukraine to collect the grain will be treated as a military vessel that is supporting the Ukrainian side in the current conflict. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the evil shitheadery gets worse with each passing day. I'm wondering what your take is on this latest series of developments, Max. I mean, I, I, I cannot uh, dispute your analysis as a simple guy myself from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I, I agree that they are evil shitheads. There is no better way to put it. Uh, and and they are up to, to more villainy as we speak, including, as you noted, uh, the, uh, you know, the plan to disrupt Ukrainian grain exports, which is going to certainly be painful for Ukraine, but will be perhaps even more painful for a lot of poor countries around the world that depend on that grain to survive. And the Russians are, you know, Putin is mobilizing famine as a weapon in his war, as, as, as we would note that the Russians have previously done in the 1930s when they created a, an artificial famine in, in Ukraine uh, to starve out Ukrainian resistance to collectivization. So this is not exactly a new departure for the Russians, but it is appalling that it is still going on in the 21st century. And, you know, along with some of the other things you mentioned, including the kidnapping of Ukrainian children, to which I would add also the indiscriminate attacks on uh, Ukrainian population centers. There was recently a uh, leading Ukrainian novelist who was killed in a Russian uh, missile strike on a pizzeria. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of uh, just sheer evil uh, that the Russians are visiting upon Ukraine. And I really think, I mean, I we all want to seem like we're 
we're, we're sophisticated, so we try not to use this language, but I really do think this is a battle of good versus evil. You know, we have to do everything possible short of, you know, we don't want to get into World War III, as Joe Biden says. I agree with that. But, you know, short of actually getting into direct combat with the Russian forces, I think we need to be doing everything possible to support the Ukrainians so they can defeat this evil invasion. Hi, let's take a moment for a word from a valued sponsor. When it comes to privacy, people tend to focus on things like tracking cookies and browsing history. Uh, But protecting your email privacy is even more important because emails contain a lot of personal and sensitive details, such as financial and health information or login credentials that you don't want falling into the wrong hands. That's what I want to tell you about StartMail, all one word, the secure email service that keeps your inbox safe. StartMail benefits include a secure ad-free communication experience, 20 gigabytes of email storage, unlimited aliases for spam protection, and world-class encryption for confidentiality, even when the recipient does not use encryption. Plus, when you delete an email, it's gone forever. And StartMail, based in the Netherlands, is GDPR compliant, ensuring your personal data is protected. Switching to StartMail is hassle-free, and includes an easy migration tool for Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, and other providers. Deep State Radio listeners can take advantage of this special offer from StartMail. Visit startmail.com slash deepstate and receive 50% off your subscription for the first year. That's startmail.com slash deepstate. Yeah, well, let's you know, sort of explore the gray area there. Um, uh, the Turkish government said that they would uh, defend ships going in to achieve the purpose of getting the grain out into these poor countries. Uh, keeping the grain from getting to these countries uh, could likely cause grave hardship for millions of innocents around the world, possibly worse, possibly famine uh, and death to millions of people. Um, Rosa, should the world sit by because we're afraid of getting into a direct conflict with Russia? Or should there be some kind of international effort to protect those ships as they come in and out of Ukraine uh, and thus preserve the supply lines to innocent people worldwide? Well, I think you're you're framing it as a little bit of a false choice of you know do, do we do we do we sit by and allow this terrible thing to happen uh, versus do we mount a military effort to protect those ships? You know, there may be other options, right? And it's a little hard to know at this point how much Putin is leaving the door open for uh, some sort of agreement to be to be recreated. It's also it's also you know there there are potentially some options of other means of getting the grain out of Ukraine that need to be explored. I mean, I think obviously what the Putin's threat to the Russian threat to regard all shipping heading towards Ukraine as military targets is a, you know, it's very much in keeping with what he's been doing all along, which is trying to raise the stakes of helping Ukraine in any way, shape or form uh, by making threats, you know, you do anything at all uh, we're going to, you know, you're going, you're, you're going to be the ones responsible for creating a risk of World War III. 
so it's, it's very, you know, it, it's, it's of a piece with all the nuclear saber rat, rat, rattling we've seen throughout the course of this conflict. Um, and, you know, it is, it is an alarming threat, obviously. Um, I don't know that we are yet at the stage where the, the choices are more direct, you know, military escorts for those ships, um, which obviously increases the, the threat of direct conflict uh, between the U.S. or other, other members of the international community and Russia versus just doing nothing. I mean, it seems to me that there, at this point, there are other diplomatic options that are actively being explored. Uh, so, you know, let, let, let's see, let's see where we go over the next week or so. But obviously, the Russian actions are very much uh, evil, evil shitheadery. Uh, no question about it. Well, where, where do you come out on this, Max? What about a um, convoys that included ships that were not NATO ships, but uh, you know, uh, the, the Turks would be NATO, obviously, but, you know, that could be from other parts of the world that were simply on a UN-sanctioned humanitarian mission to get this grain out. Um, would that be something that, you know, they, they ought to be considered? Absolutely. I think it should be considered. I mean, I agree with Rosa that it's not something we, we have to rush into tomorrow because there's a, there could be a certain element of bluff in what Putin is, is doing. And this could be part of a of a negotiating process, but if the Russians are serious about cutting off the grain, yeah, I think we I think it would definitely be something that we should look at is whether you can have an international convoy. And I think the Russians, for example, if the Turks take the lead on this, I think it'll be very hard for the Russians to do anything about it. I don't think Putin does not want to alienate Turkey because Turkey remains you know, a major kind of middle power, which is still trading with Russia. They're not enforcing sanctions on Russia. Uh, they're still buying Russian oil. So uh, Putin has a big stake in not alienating Turkey. And Turkey has made pretty clear that it supports the, the Black Sea grain shipments. And, and just in general, in the last few weeks, since Turkey dropped its objections to Sweden being in NATO, they've been kind of moving closer uh, to the NATO alliance. And so some of this could be Putin signaling unhappiness with, with the new course, course that Erdogan is on. But Erdogan has, has been constantly balancing since the start of this conflict, because on the one hand, you know, he has been trading with Russia, not enforcing sanctions. On the other hand, Turkey has been providing munitions to Ukraine. They're building a drone factory in, in Ukraine, and they have been safeguarding the and pushing for the, the Black Sea grain shipment. So I think this is an example of where you know, Putin, or, or this is an example of where Erdogan is a very difficult ally. And sometimes you want to just throw your hands up in despair and, and tell them what to do with themselves. But this is an example of where having Turkey in NATO and, and having Turkey pursue its current policies could be extremely helpful and important. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are many nuances to this uh, conflict. And uh, how we deal with some of the countries that are on the edge or not so close to the edge um, is, you know, among them. You know, I, there are stories circulating today about how Central Asian countries like Kyrgyzstan are helping to funnel um, uh, 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 types of equipment into Russia that are sanctioned. Um, and so the question of secondary sanctions against them, tougher ones, uh, comes up. Um, meanwhile, while we want to hold NATO together, um, uh, you know, the Hungarian government is now taking a really kind of repulsively uh, uh, 
restrictive stance on 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 the LGBTQ communities, uh, which is part of a sort of a general move away from democracy on the part of Orban. Um, uh, the diplomacy involved here is extremely complicated, and uh, the the tectonics of it all are 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 shifting pretty constantly. Rosa, how do you how do you think U.S. and and NATO are doing in in managing these shifts? I think overall pretty well, right? I mean, I think none of us expected in some ways, in some ways, I think the NATO summit went much better than most most commentators expected it to go, particularly in terms of Turkey's turnaround on allowing Swedish membership. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard because we're, we're constantly, I don't, I don't think balancing is the right word. I think balancing is, is never possible. We're juggling multiple different and sometimes competing contradictory considerations. Uh, but, but I, no, I think, I think that the U.S. and NATO are actually doing quite well. I think that it is quite astonishing in many ways that by and large this coalition is held together when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. Um, I think it is kind of astonishing that, that Turkey came round on Sweden. Uh, I think as, and as we've, as we've said before, the, the irony of all of this for Russia is that their fears about, uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO, strengthening NATO, have ended up um, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, certainly with regard to strengthening NATO unity and expanding NATO. So now they are, they have created for themselves to a very significant extent, the very problem that they were, they were claiming to be concerned about preventing. Um, and, you know, it is a credit by and large, I think, to both U.S.'s diplomats and to NATO's top leaders uh, that that we've done this well. So so overall, no, I, I actually think that although there are all kinds of horrifically awful things happening in the world today, uh, the relative strength and unity of NATO and the relative strength uh, and and wisdom of U.S. diplomacy and diplomacy on the part of NATO leaders has, has been quite impressive. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, and I thought that the NATO summit net uh, net went pretty well. If you take Sweden, you take the commitment to Ukraine, removing the MAP obstacle to Ukraine ultimately becoming a member, um, the long-term plan and commitments of NATO, uh, the commitments to higher uh, higher levels of spending, the unity that was expressed within NATO was all kind of net positive. There was this one little sort of worm in the apple there, and that was that there was a communique in which they said to Ukraine, you're going to be able to get in, but, um, you know, only when we all agree on it and only if you meet our terms, which was kind of so conditional as to render the the commitment meaningless. And ever since then, every single day, there's been a stronger statement to undo the damage done by that. Uh, And most recently, U.S. National Security Advisor um, Jake Sullivan said, Look, NATO is Ukraine's going to be in NATO. It's not a question anymore. We've decided that it's going to happen. Um, and so I think you know that may have blown up in the face of the people who wanted to nuance it, because because of the reaction to the nuance, uh, you've now got much more stronger statements of Ukraine coming into NATO uh, than you than you had before. You you agree with that, Max? And is that a good thing? Um, you know, I think there is some of that going on, David. I think that's right. Uh, but I, you know, I think there's also good reasons why 
the U.S., Germany, and other allies were reluctant to offer a firm timeline right now for Ukraine to enter NATO. I mean, I think there's general agreement that uh, we don't want to admit Ukraine while this war is going on because we don't want NATO allies to be sucked into a direct war with a nuclear-armed state like Russia. And of course, there was the other argument from some of Ukraine's partisans basically saying, well, Article 5 is very vague. It doesn't say you have to go to war with Russia. It just says that an attack on one member will be regarded as an attack on all members of NATO. That's true, but there has long been an assumption that an attack on a NATO member would result in something more than weapon sales or intelligence sharing, that it would actually result in the dispatch of NATO forces, in particular U.S. forces, to fight for the freedom of our NATO allies. And I don't think we want to send a signal that that we don't mean that when we say that. I think we want to make clear that we will fight for NATO members like the Baltic Republics who are very much under threat of Russian invasion all the time. And so I don't think it's prudent to uh, to admit Ukraine at a time when we would be sucked into this war with Russia. It's also, I think, problematic to say we will admit Ukraine as soon as the war with Russia is over because that basically gives Putin an incentive to keep fighting to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. So I think what they did is probably making the best of the situation. But I really think that the priority right now is not membership in NATO, which is not going to happen anytime soon. I think the priority is going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is providing Ukraine with the weapons it needs to push the Russian invaders off its soil. And right now, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is stagnating in part because the Russian defenses with their minefields are just so difficult to breach, but in part also because the Ukrainians have not gotten what they want and need uh, because we're expecting them to undertake this massive counteroffensive without air superiority, which is something we would never do ourselves. We've been used since World War II. Whenever U.S. troops have gone into battle, they've always had air superiority. So we're asking incredible sacrifices of the Ukrainians to attack without air cover when instead we ought to be providing them the air cover they need, not by sending U.S. pilots over there, but by sending U.S. airplanes like the F-16, which the Ukrainians are perfectly capable of flying with a few months of training. Yeah, and also we, we, we could have delivered the mine clearing equipment that we promised them a lot more quickly. That would have been helpful. Uh, we didn't do that. Um, uh, I would say, you know, with regard to Article 5, you know, there are countries in Europe like Estonia that I think we share a lot more uh, values with than, say, Texas. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we need to, we, um, that we need to keep in mind uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the benefits of, of, of maintaining this kind of unity within NATO. This is the point in the show where we take a brief break. Uh, and I promise you that we're going to come back with a lot more interesting stuff as well as soon as that breaks over. And I say to everybody who's not a member, this is the time you should become a member because if you're a member, you get to listen to the whole podcast. Uh, and if you're not, you don't. This is the time that we uh, we, we cut it off and say goodbye. Um, the way to become a member is go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month, become a member, and hear 33% more of all these podcasts we've got going which are currently something like nine podcasts. Uh, I think we'll add another one in September. So more and more bonus content you want to get. Uh, so go become a member if you're not one and then join us for the rest. 
Um, otherwise, if you're a member, stand by. 